Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. On the evening of the 11th of September, 1683, in the hills outside Vienna, the Polish king Jan Sobieski launched what remains the largest cavalry charge in history. Within the hour, his hussars had smashed the morale of their Ottoman opponents and driven them from the field. The siege of Vienna was lifted. The tide of Ottoman imperialism was turned back. And in that moment, it's often said, the balance of power between Christendom and Islam changed forever. So when exactly 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden chose the same date, the 11th of September, to launch his attacks on New York and Washington DC, he did so very deliberately. This was his attempt to reverse what Jan Sobieski had done outside Vienna, and to pull off a similarly spectacular, world-changing victory that would be remembered for centuries to come. But will it? Tom Holland, will 9-11 be remembered as long as the Siege of Vienna? That's a very good question. I, I, I suspect it will, because it was filmed. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that anything that's filmed is, is destined to last. Uh, and that was a key aspect of 9-11, was that it was designed to have a, an incredible visual impact. Yeah. Planned as a spectacle, wasn't it? It's Planned as a spectacle. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, so we're doing this, obviously, because it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which when it happened, felt like the most seismic of global events. Yes. What's, I mean, do you feel it, it's, meant, it's kind of maintained that status 20 years on? Um, that's a really interesting question because I think it's a very good example of how the meaning of historical events changes over time, isn't it? Um, I think it felt like in my lifetime, I would say there are two global events that felt absolutely earth-shattering and one was the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11 was the other one but of course 9-11 was more visceral because as you say it was planned as a spectacle and it, it felt like something from you know a bro it felt unimaginable but it felt at the same time like something you'd seen at the cinema um, and the meaning of it now 20 years on particularly in the aftermath of the retreat from Afghanistan feels different doesn't it because we now know what happened next so we know that it led to two wars, it led indirectly anyway, to two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, both of which involved hundreds of thousands of casualties and, you know, didn't end well for the West. Um, so it will always, I think it will always be remembered, but a bit like, I mean, this is such a hackneyed, I feel ashamed of myself for even making it, but it does feel a bit like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, as in, in 1914, the, the, the trigger for the First World War, because it did trigger wars that unfolded as the protagonists did not expect. Um, but I guess the difference is that 9-11 was also loaded with all kinds of cultural, kind of intellectual, ideological meanings, wasn't it? About the clash of civilizations and about, you know, Islam and the West and modernity against supposed medievalism and, and so on, um, which is kind of your territory, really. Yes. I, I mean, I, I guess that was pretty much how I certainly saw it. It was almost impossible not to see it through the prism of of those um, east west um, Islam, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think now that that my take on it would be that it was 
it was really about globalization. Right. I yeah. think. And I think that oddly, in that sense, Bin Laden and George Bush are, are kind of on the same side, almost. I mean, it sounds, a, it sounds a kind of heretical thing to say. Because they're universalizers, do you think? Both, you both, both, of, them are, both of them are universalizers. So if we, go, if we go back to the Islam-Christianity thing, the thing about Islam and Christianity is that they're both universalist yeah. missionary faiths. They both feel that um, they have a, a kind of a, a right, a, a duty to, to spread their understanding of the world for the good of humanity as far yeah. as they possibly can. And, and Bin Laden and Bush were both the heirs of those, those assumptions. But I think also... They're both expressive of that very distinctive moment in, in the 90s and the early noughties that we, we talked about before on the 90s episode, where globalization is seen as, as a, a positive. Yes. But lots of people hate it. And actually, both Bush and bin Laden come a cropper because they overestimate people's readiness to embrace a kind of globalized world. I think. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I was thinking about this yesterday and reading up on the sort of 1990s context. So the, the 9-11 um, is obviously much closer to the fall of the Berlin Wall than it is to us now. I mean, it's 10 years or so from the fall of the Berlin Wall, 12 years, and it's 20 years away from us. Um, and I think it, it it kind of, the way one way that I would make sense of it is in the back, uh, after all the stuff, you know, Francis Fukuyama and the end of history, his argument, the Western liberals, I mean, that's the classic universalizing argument. The yeah. Western liberal, that history is this sort of Hegelian struggle of ideologies. And the last one, the last man standing is liberal democracy. And that that is going to, you know, that is going to conquer. Um, but there are also books like in 1990, I mean, so early, actually, 1992, um, a guy called Benjamin Barber wrote an article in The Atlantic called Jihad versus McWorld. Became a book a year later, very successful at the time. Saying you know there were two basically that there were two forces that will decide the course of human affairs. One is globalization, and the other is what I think what he called tribalism. So he basically but he's equating tribalism and, with jihad. Yeah, but he's using jihad very. He's using it loosely. Actually, he doesn't just mean Islamic fundamentalism. He means. You see, I get. I think he gets that spectacularly wrong because I okay, think the whole point. That's interesting. The whole point about. Bin Laden is that he, like Bush, is an internationalist. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the, and this is a, a sense that's been very much sharpened by what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. Because the point about the Taliban, where yeah. Bin Laden, you know, took refuge, is that is that the Taliban regarded Bin Laden with considerable suspicion. Yes. In the when he took refuge there, I mean, they viewed him as a, a kind of um, a problem that had been left in Afghanistan by the warlords that bin yeah. laden had been fighting with and who the taliban had overthrown and specifically they were suspicious they were suspicious of bin laden you know they, they were suspicious of the fact that he appeared on tv taliban <laughs> banned tv right. they yeah. they were suspicious of the um the kind of the rootless cosmopolitanism well the modernity of, of, of the of the right? arab yeah. you know of all the various people from the various arab countries that had come to join bin laden they were yeah. suspicious of this just as conversely, Bin Laden regarded the Taliban with a kind of measure of contempt, a kind of, you know, a globalist contempt for, for bumpkins, because they weren't interested in Tom, let me global just, um, jihad. Our producer is saying we should remind people who Osama Bin Laden was. Yes, that we should. Ex- that seems an extraordinary thing to say. because, yes, it- uh, But of course, he's quite right. Um, younger listeners, we assume, of course, that everyone's as steeped in this as we are. But, you know, it is 20 years ago. So, so give us a very quick sort of bio of Osama Bin Laden 
very broad brush. So, some, well, I think I think actually we should pull the camera out even further, and we should we should try and just look at uh, just explain that what built up to to nine eleven and then the aftermath for people who, okay. who may not be particularly familiar with it. So, the context that I think is provided by the way in which the West's universalism over the past two centuries has come to put in the shade Islam's claim to universalism. Uh, and in the Muslim world, there have been various responses to this. Accommodation, um, ranging from to, to, to outright opposition. Yeah. In the 90s, when it looked, as you said, the end of history, the triumph of the West, liberal democracies prevailed everywhere. Um, this sharpens and hardens a feeling among Islamic radicals that this Western triumphalism has to be opposed. The person who becomes synonymous with this is a, guy, a Saudi, Osama bin Laden, skin of a, of, of a very, very kind of prosperous Saudi industrialist family making concrete and all kinds of things like that. Um, he's, he's a kind, you know, I mean, he, he, he's, I think, the 19th son or something like that. And, and he goes off as romantic young men have, have always done to go and, and, and fight for noble causes. And his cause is, is fighting the Soviets and then um, yeah, in, in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. The Soviets leave. Bin Laden comes to the conclusion that America, the great Satan, and Satan in, in Islam is a tempter. Right? He has, you know, it's not quite the embodiment of evil that he is in the Western imagination. He's the tempter. So America is the great Satan. Bin Laden comes to, to, to think that rather than fight local wars, as the Taliban have been doing in Afghanistan, what is needed is to join Muslims across the world in a common battle against their common enemy. Because bin Laden yeah. comes to see that all these kind of local battles, um, the fact that um, you know there is um, infidel influence in Afghanistan, the fact that after the first Iraq war, um, there are American troops in Arabia and Mohammed had specifically said that there should be only one faith in, uh, only one deed, only one religion in Arabia, yeah. that this is an outrage, that 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 across the entire Muslim world, the West is kind of intruding and particularly America. And therefore, they, they need to take the fight to the Americans. And so he forms this group, Al-Qaeda, which basically means the foundation, the base, um, yeah. to launch the fight back. And he comes to the conclusion that the best way to do this is to attack America in its homeland. And so he recruits various um, young men to embark on a martyrdom operation. They will go to America. They will learn to fly. And on 9-11 or yeah. the 11th of September, as we Britain call it, yeah. um, they, uh, they fly. The plan is that they will fly four planes into various icons of American financial, military and governmental power. So the Twin Towers of uh, in uh, in New York, which comes off the yeah. Pentagon, which comes off, and either the the Capitol or the White House. This doesn't come off because um, the people on the hijacked planes yeah. realize what's happening, force the controls, and crash the plane. I, I mean, an unbelievably moving story, even now, twenty years on. I, yeah. I, you know, when you you read it, you kind of feel your eye, your kind of eyeballs prickling at the them and the storming that the are coming down and everything. Yeah, it's it's. Powerful stuff, and and all of this, of course, is being played out, as you say, on television. Um, you know, th this is the first age where kind of messages can can bounce around the world. Um, the internet is cranking up, um, and so it's it, it, 
apart from anything else, it's an incredible spectacle. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, it's devastating for Americans in particular, both for that reason, but also because they've been attacked on American soil. Yeah. And they, you know, America come to see itself as being impre- basically impregnable within its own homeland. And so the question then becomes, well, what are they going to do? And President Bush, who's been flying all around um, America and various bases on 9-11 itself, decides that they're not going to treat this as a, a criminal operation. Yeah. Uh, you know, They're not going to treat it as a, a police matter. They're going to treat it as something altogether more existential. America is at war and it is at war with terror. Well, let's come to that. Let's come to the reaction um, a little bit later, but let's unpack a couple of things there. So Osama bin Laden, it's often said that Al-Qaeda and, and bin Laden and so on, they were mad, irrational and so on. But actually, he published numerous statements um, explaining quite sort of specifically his goal, his objections and his goals. And the two things that come up again and again are obviously American support for Israel. Um, but one of them is that thing that you mentioned about American troops in Saudi Arabia. Um, and that's obviously a consequence of the Gulf War. And, and a little known fact is that bin Laden had offered his Mujahideen to the Saudi king to protect them against um, Saddam Hussein when everybody thought that Saddam was going to go on from Kuwait and attack Saudi Arabia. And the king of Saudi Arabia said, no, thank you. You know, I can, I can live without your you know, 50 ragtag men. I'd rather have the US military. So the US, and, and bin Laden is absolutely incensed by this. Yeah. And, and I, I, my question to you, Tom, is how much do you think that's shared? I mean, how much is that personal peak in a way that his homeland has got American troops in it and he has this animus against America? And how much is that more widely shared, a sort of sense of outrage that American troops in particular, the embodiment of modern, Western modernity, are in the holy, you know, are guarding the holy places, as it were. I, I think it's a kind of, um, there's the, the, the embers are definitely hot and they yeah. can be blown on. And that's essentially what bin Laden sets himself to do. Um, but I think that bin Laden is expressive of a whole trend within um, Islamic militancy, which sees a need to respond to Western Westernization, let's call it that, yeah. Westernization. Um by looking back to the example of of the Prophet and his companions, so the Salaf, so that the Salafists. And and this Salafist tradition then fuses with a jihadi tradition. And the jihadi tradition is the idea that you 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 best serve God by basically you know, but but by fighting to 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 maintain the um the dignity um indeed the power of of his dispensation so salafi jihadism is a, a trend that has you know it's it's a, a kind of movement it's a way of seeing the world that has been kind of bubbling away below the yeah. surface and 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 the thing is, and the thing is that that the west is it's it's not looking at this, you know. It's it's eye has been fixed on the Cold War for so long, and yeah. even after the 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 fall of the Berlin Wall, it it's not. It it can't take this stuff seriously, because people getting cross about you know American troops being present in in Arabia because the Prophet had said that uh, you know no Christians or Jews should be allowed into Arabia seems mad to Americans. 
Yeah. Um, likewise, Bin Laden is is. Um, I, I mean, he's he's terribly upset about the end of the caliphate. So after nine eleven, he issues a statement. And he says, what America is tasting now is something insignificant compared to what we, i.e. Muslims, have tasted for scores of years. Our nation has been tasting this humiliation and degradation for more than 80 years. And he's talking there about the ending of the caliphate, which yeah. you know, with the end of the, of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this is not the kind of stuff that in Langley, yeah, people take anyone in CIA is taking seriously at all. Or in MI5 or in the French security services or anything like that. But Tom, and- there is a sense in America, though, that, um, that there is a growing, there has been a growing sense, I think, since the Iranian Revolution um, and, and America's humiliation and the hostage crisis at the end of the 1970s into 1980, that there is a new enemy, as it were, awakening. So this is a very strange thing to say to talk about in a in a um, a podcast about 9/11. But we watched The Naked Gun the other day, you know, mm-hmm. the um, Leslie yeah. Nielsen film, and the beginning of that. It's a scene in which the hero, Beirut, Frank Drebin, he bursts in and all America's enemies are gathered in a room. Now, Gorbachev is there, but he's not the chairman. The, the chair of the meeting is the Ayatollah Khomeini. And the other people around the room are Yasser Arafat. I mean, Idi Amin is there, bizarrely. Um, so Yasser Arafat is Saddam there. Saddam Hussein is there? Uh, I'm not sure if Saddam Hussein is there. Colonel Gaddafi is there. I think because when it was made, late 80s, Gaddafi was uh, loomed larger in the Western consciousness as a hate figure than Saddam Hussein did, actually, because, of course, Libya had been involved in sponsoring terrorism and so on. So, And it happens in the Middle East as well. I think it happens in the scene is set in Morocco or somewhere, or, or Beirut, sorry, it's in it's Beirut. Beirut, isn't it? Yeah. It is in Beirut. But- so there's already a sense there that um, that the Cold War is being, I mean, it's such a strange thing to, to allude to, but the Cold War is being shuffled off stage because Gorbachev says at one point, I have the Americans believing I'm a nice guy. Um, whereas the others are clearly out and out villains. And um, there's a sort of, I think there was a growing sense in the 1990s, you see this in so many Hollywood films, that the the new threat was going to come from the Middle East and from Islamic fundamentalism, don't you think? So all that sort of Samuel Huntington stuff, the clash of civilizations, for example. But not not, not quite in the the way that the, the Salafi jihadists embody it. Because yeah. because the thing, you know, Gaddafi is, I mean, his relationship to Islam is very ambivalent. Yes, of course. Yeah, there's this kind of Baathist tradition, which is basically kind of, you know, I mean, it's Baathism is fat, which is the ideology of of Saddam Hussein, and of the Assads in Syria. Well, that's about modern modernization, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that's founded. That's founded by a Christian. It's founded by a Christian. So 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 that's a, yeah, kind of sinister, you know, fascist. I mean, basically, it lays more to fascism than it does to to, to Islam. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini, I mean, he's a Shiite. Yes. And so Shiism, you know, is is not missionary in the way that, that Sunniism is. So we just yeah. explain, you know, that the, these are kind of the two great traditions within Islam. Um, what what Bin Laden brings to the imagination, and, and I think you're absolutely right to frame it in terms of Hollywood, because this is this is an influence on how the Americans understand 9-11. But it's also, a, I mean, it's an influence on how Bin Laden <laughs> comes to imagine attacking the trade center. Because in the training camps, most of the most of the people who are going there, they're, they're kind of deracinated. They're 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 people from often very westernized. Um, they're kind of younger sons of wealthy families, but like Bin yeah. Laden himself, they're often English speaking. Um, these these are very very kind of internationalist 
camps and in the evenings after they've done their training and their indoctrination and everything they will sit down and they'll watch hollywood films they're, they're kind of big fans of schwarzenegger and all that kind of stuff yeah it's fascinating and so what what the, what what bin what what 911 does is to cast bin laden actually as a kind of bond villain yeah, I think that's absolutely but, but, right. Because, in his cave yeah, network, his base. I remember because, all those yeah. illustrations in the newspapers claiming that this was this incredibly sophisticated bunker. The Ayatollah or uh, Gaddafi or Idi Amin or I suppose Kim Jong-un in, what was it, the uh, the puppet one? Um, um, uh, Team America. Yeah, Team America. I mean, these these are all kind of baddies who are leaders of countries. Yeah. Bin Laden is stateless. Bin Laden has had his Saudi passport taken away from him. And that's what makes him such a kind of ideal figure to play the role of a, a of a Bond villain. Yes. And you're right about that. So, so when after after nine eleven, the Americans and NATO attack Afghanistan and they move into the Tora Bora mountains, and they're at, Bin Laden and, and Al Qaeda are hiding out in caves. And I remember there was um, there was a kind of picture in in the Sunday Times of this cave complex. Yeah, you know, they didn't actually say it had swimming pools, but I mean they might as well have done. It was it was entirely fabricated from someone who'd been watching too many James Bond it's Blofeld, films. It's Blofeld's base, basically, yes, isn't it? absolutely. You know? And there was all this kind of talk about how they were fighting their way through cave complexes and things. Absolute rubbish. You know, there were no cave complexes. There, yeah. you know, there was none of it. It was just a load of caves. But, 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 but that kind of internationalism, you know, that both sides saw the other as, as the embodiment of a kind of sinister and terrifying conspiracy to take over the world and destroy everything that was good. So Bin Laden is talking about good and evil. He's talking about God and Satan. And Bush, likewise, in the aftermath of 9-11, yeah. is talking about good and evil. Axis of evil. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think you're absolutely right about the internationalism of the of the of the sort of al-Qaeda recruits. I mean, Mohammed Atta, for example, he had he had he was the chief hijacker. He was the from oldest. Hamburg. I think he was he was yeah, he'd studied Egyptian, urban planning. Egyptian from Hamburg. Exactly. He had studied urban planning in Hamburg. Um, this extraordinary story, I'm not sure how true this is, that his parents or his father had overheard two Germans speaking on holiday in Egypt and had spoken to and had talked to them. And they turned out to be running a sort of exchange scheme. And he said, oh, you know, my son's really interested in urban planning. Can he come to... And he goes off to Germany. And it's that classic thing, which you also see with Said Qutb, who's one of the sort of, arguably the sort of founding father of modern um, Islamic militancy, isn't he? That uh, of the sort of the 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 guy who's been uprooted, he's gone to the sort of modern Western country and he's lonely, miserable. Um, people aren't you know, friendly to him. People are mean to him. And he feels left out. And that resentment grows and grows and builds and builds. And you see that pattern, don't you, again and again um, in the yeah. profiles of, the, of some of these people involved in the story? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting. So, so um, Atta is, is Egyptian. Um, Zahiri, who is um, bin Laden's number two. I think he's, I mean, he's still currently. He's still out there. Of Al-Qaeda, yeah. isn't he? Somewhere. He yeah. knows where he is. I mean, he's Egyptian. He was a, um, a surgeon. Uh, got involved in the assassination of President Sadat in 1981. Um, Sadat, of course, having signed the peace concord with Israel, so that was his yeah. his crime. And you mentioned Said Qutb, who um, was uh, a kind of stoop-shouldered, balding, uh, very shy Egyptian um, who who goes in the aftermath of the of the, um, of the Second World War to America, to New York, to Washington, um, and then to this town in uh, in Colorado. 
which right. was yeah. kind of temp- founded by temperance. So it's, it's, I mean, it's very, very straight laced, but he regarded it as absolutely Sodom and Gomorrah and was, was kind of obsessed by the, the lewdness of American women and all kinds of things. And he wrote lots of weird of stuff about the yes. buttocks and stuff, you know, that clearly there's a lot going on in his subconscious. Yeah. And so I think that, that with Egypt, so, so this is all coming off the backdrop of the, uh, you know, this is why I want to do uh, Napoleon in Egypt, because, of course, Egypt is the first target, really, for the modern West. Napoleon conquers it, then it get, the British inherit it. Um, and, and I think that, that for Egyptians, you know, Cairo, the great cultural centre of, of, of Islam in you know, its golden ages, to, to go from the chaos of Cairo, the poverty of Cairo, to American cities in the 50s or, you know, to Hamburg, in the 90s to study yeah. town planning you feel a sense of kind of of humiliation i think um yeah and that's evident in Kutub and i think it's evident in atta and i think also I, I mean i don't want to kind of do cod psychology but there is a kind of sexual dimension to it as well because both Kutub and atta are obsessed by the easy availability of sex in western cities and and Muhammad Atta in his will leaves this kind of weird prescriptions that no pregnant women will attend his funeral procession and no women will be allowed to visit his grave yeah. or anything like that. Well, so Atta that- had been Atta had stayed in in Hamburg before he goes to America to 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 carry out the deed. He's been staying with a family who had an unmarried who had a daughter who was unmarried but had a baby, and he they kicked him out I think eventually because he treated her with such contempt. And this girl. And her baby, this young woman and her baby, played a massive part in his imagination as sort of symbols of Western decadence. Yeah. And, and I don't think you have to go too deep into the world of cod psychology to see that no. there is something kind of weird going on in his in his mind there. And so Kutub writes these, you know, the, the, these texts that really kind of, you know, are, are the match that, that lights the kind of blaze that Bin Laden will then kind of really blow up. That's a terrible metaphor, but some sense what I'm. Um, and he 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 is basically saying we have to turn our backs on this, and we have to to, to look back to the example of the prophet. And Islam is it is only Islam that can save not just Muslims but the whole of humanity. So it it, it is you know the stakes could not be higher. And in a way, you know, in a sense, Bush is Bush is the same, and that's what makes it's it's not nine eleven itself. That is particularly important. Shocking though it is, you know, overwhelmingly, it's the reactions to it. Okay, well, let's, that's a perfect point to take a break and then we'll come back and we should talk about George W. Bush and the reaction to 9 11. See you in a minute. Hello. Excuse the brief interruption. We'll soon have you back in the warm embrace of Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. But first, we wanted to tell you about our new podcast, Tommy's and Jerry's, which explores the relationship between Britain and Germany through history to the present. It features me, Oliver Moody, a Briton based in Berlin, and Katja Hoyer, a German historian, mostly enjoying life in England. Here's a brief taster. Break out the beach towels and bag the best spot. Welcome to Tommy's and Jerry's, a new podcast in which we plan to put the Realpolitik and the Eröffnungsdiskussionsorgien into the world of podcasting. Each week we'll discuss the past and present of Anglo-German relations. What makes us different and what makes us sometimes painfully similar? There's a very famous picture of Thatcher 
driving along in a Challenger tank with a British flag flying and she's got her goggles on and her scarf. And she looks like the absolute warrior queen, <laughs> almost like a Britannia-style nationalistic figure. But when you look at the zoomed-out version of that photo, it was actually taken on a British military base in West Germany. And right next to her, there's Cole trundling along on his own um, <laughs> Leopard 2 German battle tank with a German flag. <laughs> and it was clearly some effort to try and give them like a fun day out together. And all that it's remembered <laughs> for is just, just this symbol of British nationalism. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably exactly how she would have liked it as well. <laughs> Things have got so bad that there's this paper that, that turned up showing um, that Cole had made a formal request not to talk to Thatcher anymore um, and to talk to um, the Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd, instead. And Thatcher had just scribbled on it in massive capital letter handwriting. No! Because <laughs> they made no effort to hide that either. Thatcher in particular was kind of openly hostile. You see that on all of the photographs. I don't think they ever had as bad a relationship as people made it out to be, to be honest, Boris Johnson and, and Angela Merkel. You don't see Boris <laughs> slapping Angie on the back, but you do get the sense from the last visit that there was a genuine effort. Uh, I'm not so sure. I've been, I've been told in Berlin that um, actually it's terrible. It's really, really bad. And um, she can't stand him. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Tommy's and Jerry's. Search for Tommy's and Jerry's wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center and on uh, Washington, D.C. that happened exactly 20 years ago. Um, Tom, there was a documentary on the BBC a couple of nights ago, absolutely brilliant documentary about George W. Bush and sort of taking you through minute by minute his reaction as the day unfolded. You saw it, didn't you? I did. Um, I, The guy who made it, Adam Wishart. Friend of yours. Old friend. Um, Everybody's a friend of Tom Holland. Fanta- a fantastic film. Um, yeah. And... How charming they all seemed. <laughs> well, this the is the extraordinary thing. How... That these people who, I mean, if you move as we do in kind of literary media sort of circles in, in, in Britain, I mean, all these people are reviled, you know, to a, to a degree that, I mean, this sounds like an absurd thing to say, but I've, I've heard people slagging off George W. Bush far more often than I've heard them slagging off Osama bin Laden. Um, but he came across as, in that because, documentary, but, as remarkably the... human. But the reason for that is that we're judging him by our standards. Yeah, of course. And of course. what I would say about Bush is that what he did was f- far worse than anything that Trump did. Right. Or Biden. I, 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 think, I think he trashed the American brand and the Western brand. Okay. Well, let's come back to that in a sec. I think there's... I think, As I, I mean, think bin Laden trashed the, tr- trashed the Islamic brand. So one of the th- so one of the things that I think has come out of nine yeah. eleven is is that the the global reputation of both Islam and the West has been seriously damaged. Well, Islam and also specific specifically America, Tom. Um, I mean, you. Well, I, think, a, I think Britain were, as well. There were oh, I don't know Britain. Um, there were um, you know, there's all this amazing footage after nine eleven of you know, Vladimir Putin lighting candles, um, people around the world. Um, uniting in support, playing the American national anthem, uh, waving American flags in the days after the the event. Not everywhere, of course. I mean, you know, not in Ramallah, but but 
worldwide, particularly and obviously especially in Europe. And in a way, that seems odd now because the reaction against America was so quick after the invasion of Iraq. Um, what two years later, wasn't it? But the thing is, watching that documentary, so George Bush had only been in office since January, um, and he'd come into office as, I mean, the documentary he says this specifically. I came in as a domestic president, which I remember at the time because I was in America during that election campaign. And he said again and again, the US is no longer going to be the world's policeman. So he wanted, you know, he was preaching an antidote to what he saw as Clinton's interventionism in Somalia and his drone and his airstrikes and, and these kinds of things. Bush said, we're not going to do that anymore. And then you, the documentary captures very well the fact that in just a few hours, Bush's whole sense of himself and his role in history changes. You know, there's that famous footage. He's he's reading books, isn't he, with a kind of primary school class? About goat, a goat, I think. Um, yeah, they're doing spelling, and and the most yeah. the footage is amazing. Yeah, you know, they 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 go in on his eyes, and you see the flicker in his eyes when he's told. Um, he doesn't rush off because he doesn't want to scare the children, but but you know, within hours, his his sense of who he is and what he is for has changed. And and I, I actually thought what that documentary captured, and this is why the assassination of Franz Ferdinand seems to me a, a reasonable parallel, is the extent to which he's the prisoner of events as well as their master. So he says, you know, he knew what the American people expected. And there's a moment at the end of the documentary when he's talking to firefighters amid the wreckage of the World Trade Center. And what people forget is that he, and he says this himself, is he starts off talking about praying and sort of sorrow and coming together and stuff. And he says in the documentary, I could see they didn't want to hear that. You know, I was an experienced politician. I could read the crowd. What they wanted to hear was, we're going to go and, you know, kick their ass, um, which is basically what he says at the end. And of what the, he did. And what he did. He changes yeah. his tone. But the question, I suppose, is could any American pre or would any American president have behaved differently at the end of this period of when they thought their top nation of great, uh, buoyant American exceptionalism. They have this, I mean, the gap between them and the rest of the world militarily is probably greater in tw 2001 than ever before or since because China has yet to fully rearm as it has now. Um, could anybody have resisted that, Tom? I mean, every, they were always going to go into Afghanistan, weren't they? I, th I think going into Afghanistan was inevitable. I think I, I don't see any way in which, I agree, any, no American president could not have done that. I think, I think the wrong turn was what happened after Afghanistan. Which essentially is is Iraq, yeah. And you know there are two. I guess there are kind of two takes on Iraq as to why the Americans go into Iraq. One one is the kind of bleakly cynical one that it's all about oil or Israel or vengeance for you know Saddam Hussein being horrid to George Bush's dad or whatever. Yeah. And and the other is that it was a necessary take, you know, necessary step in the war on terror. And that it was it was a welcome chance to overthrow a, a kind of horrible tyrant in the form of Saddam Hussein, um, and, and of course, I mean, it could be both, and probably was both. All kinds of different interests kind of mixing and merging, and we know, you know, we've talked about this in the context of the British Empire, that that kind of blend of self interest and messianism is is absolutely, yeah, you know, that that's what propels empires. But I think that um, the the reason that that Bush was was so calamitous. Was that I think that he and you know you talk about this this dawning sense on his face that he is he is someone who has been put at a pivotal moment in history and his decisions are going to to count. I think I think he feels that he's been put there by God. He is a a, a deeply deeply believing Christian, mm. and I think that he believes when he talks about good and evil that that the war on terror you know it could have been a police operation, but it yeah. isn't. 
and you know the 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 operations that they you know it's kind of operation enduring freedom the the original name for the war on terror was going to be operation infinite justice this is a crusade you know he yeah. used the word crusade and then got kind of told off by his advisors because this wasn't advisable but it was a crusade in exactly the same way as bin laden likewise sees himself as embroiled in a fight for for, for good and evil and the, the thing that complicates it with with bush and of course with blair as well is that they never frame it in overtly Christian terms, even though everyone knows that that this is where they're coming from. Instead, what they do, and again, I think this is entirely, you know, I don't, I don't think they're lying about this, but Bush repeatedly says ab- about bin Laden and al-Qaeda that they're corrupting Islam, that they don't really understand Islam, that they haven't got it right. Um, yeah. And that, that, um, that basically Islam is entirely compatible with Western liberal democracy. Uh, Blair said that. I mean, every Western leader said that in the aftermath of, of 9-11 for very understandable reasons, because they didn't want to, to provoke, you know, provoke kind of anti-Muslim feeling within the West itself or indeed beyond. But but I think the, the problem with that was that it was a kind of cultural arrogance because it suggested everything that bin Laden was terrified about. It was suggesting precisely that, yes, Islam, this ancient, you know, sophisticated civilization, can absolutely just be folded into the more of you know Hamburg town planning or yes. sex yeah. clubs or whatever that, that that it's just another kind of interesting local detail, and that essentially the morals and the values of humanity are equivalent to those of westerns Westerners at the beginning of the twenty first. Well, that's century. all that sort of and, stuff about fighting for enlightenment values, isn't it? Absolutely, that we, we yes. should export enlightenment but, values, but, and, and that Islam can somehow but, be, but that's you know, not but, can easily be folded into it, as you say. But that's not really. But Bush isn't talking about enlightenment values. He's talking about rights. He's talking about freedoms. You know, he's saying, "Why do they hate us? They hate us for our freedom." Yeah, but these are very, very culturally specific American perspectives. See, I take I take on Bush would be slightly different in that I think straight away Bush transforms himself into an unashamed American nationalist, and um, you know I think of things like uh, you know the Patriot Act, um, which is the act that 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 enshrines surveillance, the, the the Department of Homeland Security. I always found that such a jarring name because I always thought when people talk about the homeland, I mean it's something that we in Britain would never do. We would, ne- I mean, it's impossible to, isn't it? To, well, at least it, I mean, maybe they've got one, God Almighty. But you know that sort of that sort of rhetoric. And I think what to me one of his great mistakes, apart from Iraq, obviously, was him speaking purely to a domestic American audience. And I can completely understand why he did that. I don't think he was though, because I, I no, because he you know he he's he's you know he's endlessly sending messages. Actually, when you look at them, how many messages he how how often he talks about Islam, how often he addresses the Muslim world. There's a lot of it. And it's all kind of couch. You know, he, he says when it comes to the common rights and needs of men and women, there is no clash of civilizations. Essentially, he's saying that his understanding of what the rights and needs of men yeah. and women are are equivalent to all of humanities. And he's absolutely framing his, you know. And I think that that is, I think that that he does have this kind of universalist mission, as Blair did as well. And, and you know, it was really, really kind of vital part of of what they were about. It's why they're waging a war on terror. Well, but but I think. As, at the same time, there is incredibly chauvinist nationalist figures in his administration. And, you know, I, Bush is obviously a very smart, astute politician, but I don't think he's as smart as Dick Cheney, say, say as Dick Cheney <laughs> yeah. or, or Donald Rumsfeld. You know, so Dick no, Cheney, I mean, they're Vice obviously... President Donald Rumsfeld, the, the defence, the, you know, um, what do they have? 
Secretary of State for Defense. What do they call Secretary, him? Yeah, yeah, Secretary of Defense. Yeah. Um, and and immense Washington veterans. I mean, they've been around yeah. since the Nixon administration. They, 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 they are all about you know America first. Yes. Um, and that kind of that, that sense of a moral mission that Bush and Blair had. And that's why, you know, the Jeremy Paxman question to Blair, did he pray together, was such a, you know, I mean, it was kind of probing this absolutely neurologic, because you had no doubt that they were praying together. Um, but the, but the, the problem was that the, the moment they, they cast it as a war on terror uh, and felt that therefore this legitimated um, basically kind of, you know, invading and overthrowing anybody that they wanted to, um, they were brought up against the fact that actually lots of people didn't want the kind of freedom yeah. that they were bringing, didn't want the kind of understanding of what was right and proper that, that Bush and Blair believed in, um, and therefore were going to fight back. And the moment they started fighting back, you know, every imperial force has to has a choice. Do you, you know, do you cut and run or do you fight? Yeah, and the Americans chose to fight. And so therefore, inevitably, the corollary of that is that you start killing people. And in due course, you start torturing people. And, you know, the, 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 the kind of the trashing of the rule of law, the rule of international law, which is a, a completely Western structure. I mean, Bin Laden's right about that. Al-Zakawi, this kind of terrifying, murderous figure known as the Sheikh of Slaughterers in Iraq, who, I mean, te- you know, blows up weddings, slits windpipes. I mean, a terrifying figure. He's, he's absolutely committed to the idea that international law is a Western scam. It's a Christian scam. And therefore, you know, that he, Azakawi blows up the United Nations in Baghdad for that reason. But this is why things like uh, Guantanamo, the camp yeah. at Guantanamo, but it's also so that, lethal. Those, those horrendous pictures, um, Lindy England, that was the woman's yes, name, he, wasn't it? And the, the prison in Iraq, that was Iraq, wasn't it? Yes. Um, leading, I mean, they, were, people they are leads, so damaging to the American brand um, uh, and to the, because. You know, if you're claiming to, if you if you frame it in ideological cultural terms as a war on terror, in other words, you, what you're offering is kind of virtue, peace, and so on. And if you just trash that with your own activities, yeah. then it's hardly surprising that you're going to inflame people against you. But actually, Tom, before you go back on, you reembark on your on your fascinating um, uh, uh, lecture. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I wanted to say moral mission. That sense of moral mission, I think a lot of that comes from the Cold War. So it is quite close to the Cold War in time, this. It's only 10 years since the, you know, 12 years anyway, since the end of the Cold War. And those people that you mentioned, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, they'd been Cold War hawks. And so many of the neoconservative intellectuals around them, and even people who hadn't previously been neoconservatives, so people like Christopher Hitchens, they're kind of steeped in that idea of Cold War, good versus evil. You know, we are on the side of, of progress, modernity, reason. They're on the side of barbarism. Um, yeah. And I think that plays a, a huge part. That, that This is almost the last generation, I think, who, you know, it's the sort of last, they're a sort of pre-postmodernist generation. They absolutely believe in good versus evil, right versus wrong. And, you know, it's not about competing narratives. It's about genuine, absolute moral truths. Absolutely. But it, it leads, it ends up with figures in, in Baghdad jails, you know, being yeah. electroded and being carried around, you know, being leashed like dogs. And it it leads to um, the West trampling on the law, you know, the, the, the frameworks of international law, the understanding of human rights that supposedly they're going to war to defend. And the mirror image of that is, is what bin Laden is doing to the reputation of Islam. Because right. 
you know, for, for, for lots of people who are now who are not Muslim, thanks to bin Laden and thanks to the, the, the kind of the, the cycle of terrorism that, that he helped to inspire, Islam is now, you know, synonymous with jihad, which is synonymous with bombs on tube trains. And, yes. You know, I, I, and so I think that, the, and that's why we, we began, I said, I think it's actually about globalization. I think it's about these two great globalizing forces, Islam and Christendom, the West, whatever you want to call it. They've both been fighting a proxy war over the past 20 years. They've both completely trashed their brands. And of course, you know, we emerge, you know, the Americans are leaving Afghanistan. It's not even as though, um, you know, the Taliban or indeed ISIS, you know, they're, they're now left to fight each other. So they're, I mean, it's kind of squalid fight over the spoils there. So they're, they're, it's not like they've won any great victory either. And lurking on the on the uh, on on the um, on the eastern borders are, is China, yep. which it does not have a kind of universalizing mission or vision. And yeah, it's all the vision, yeah, surely. and all the yeah. smoke. Well, it's kind of civilizational, perhaps you might say. But all the smoke that's lifted from nine eleven, you know, is fading away. And what we see is a world where America, in pursuit of a kind of universalizing mission, has trashed its brand over massively overloaded its credit card and china has gone through you know leaps and bounds so 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 actually you know bin laden's bin laden wanted to bleed america to death that was his ambition he wanted to provoke america to to do exactly what it did um but 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 it's not islam that's benefited from it it's china but tom does that do you think then that um in the grand ske- in the grand sweep of history, in the in the very grand scheme of things, do you think nine eleven really matters? I mean, the, China was going to rise anyway. American power was arguably at its peak in the nineteen nineties and bound to then decline. Um, Islam, the tension between Islam and the West was already there. Do you think that it it, it is it a turning point? Does it change history in a, in a really grand sort of big picture way? Do you think? I I think that. Um... So Jason Burke, um, observer, yeah, journalist, very good writer fabulous about Taliban book, the nine eleven wars. Uh, I think that's as good a, a phrase for them as as any. I mean, I think if you lived through the nine eleven wars, you know, in in Iraq, in Afghanistan, I mean, yeah, nine eleven really, really mattered. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I I <clears throat> it rubbed up close against me personally on on a couple of occasions. So um, when my younger daughter was, oh, she must have been only about six months or something, maybe a bit older. Maybe she was three. I can't remember. She was in a pram. She was in a pram and um, got stuck on a tube at Stockwell, um, gave up, went up the uh, escalators. As I was going through the escalators, the police were jumping over the escalators, herring down the tracks. And of course, that was where um suspected suicide bomber was shot, but he turned out not to have been a suicide bomber. John Charles de Menezes. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, to have been there with a, my daughter in a pram with all this going on. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, living in London, you're kind of privileged. You know, you're not living in the heart of these awful wars. But that was, mm. a, I, that was a kind of unsettling experience. And then I went to Iraq. I went to, um, to Sinjar City, that had been where, where the Yazidis, religious minority, had kind of been protected under Saddam Hussein, um, lived and... Uh, 
they've been brutally targeted by the Islamic State, who are the kind of inheritor apparatus of both the Baathists and of al-Zakawi, uh, who'd absolutely kind of brutally treated them, crucified lots of men, slaughtered them, enslaved women and girls. Uh, I mean, kind of horrible. And to stand there with Islamic State kind of a couple of miles away across this flat land um, was a really frightening experience. I felt my nose was brought up close to the kind of horror that, you know, Bin Laden had unleashed, but also the American response to it had unleashed. Uh, But having said that, of course, I mean, you know, it's, What's the alternative? The alternative in which Saddam Hussein is still in power. Um, well, this is the thing about history, isn't it? There are no, there's no magic wand, and there's no, you know, there's no utopian. But I'm not. Solutions. I haven't answered your question. I mean, all of this, of course, is local. I think. I think that the. I, I think that it's done long-term damage to the, to the moral reputation and the economic stability of the West. The yeah, and yet when you watch twenty years. And and I think that it's done terrible damage to the, the the name and the reputation of Islam. Well, I think that's definitely true. Um, and, the, and the extraordinary thing is when you watch that documentary, so it's minute by minute, and you see it, you know, you watch the crisis unfolding through the US administration's eyes, that sense of ter- that looming terrible damage seems a world away, doesn't it? Because they're, you know, they're reacting in such human terms to this appalling tragedy. And, the, and they think far more people die than actually did die. I mean, the general sense, wasn't it? on September 11th, was that tens of thousands of people would probably be killed. And even now, that footage, Tom, of the buildings coming down and, and the smoke rolling through the streets of New York City and, and the sound of those recordings of the sort of air traffic controllers and so on, I mean, it's inc- it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. But it's also, as the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard notoriously yes. said. I wondered if we would get to him. Exciting. Yes, People found it true. exciting. I mean, yeah. it's kind of an awful thing to say. Of course, I mean, it was terrible, particularly if you know, you know people in New York or, or Washington, of course, I mean, completely terrible. But also, it could not help but evoke images of, you know, Independence Day where aliens destroy. Yeah. Washington or Godzilla, where you know a giant monster roams through the concrete yeah. canyons and uh, that kind of dust swirling down. I mean, it, it it looked like a Hollywood film, and Baudrillard's point was that, in a way, that was um, that was Bin Laden's great triumph was that he had attacked America in the kind of dimension of the imagination. Yeah, well, but I mean, Baudrillard said basically he gave. He... It's a bit like when that thing about people who watch Formula One races, there's part of them always that's hoping for a massive pileup. Um, yeah. I mean, Baudrillard says, you know, haven't, haven't we dreamt of this event? Hasn't the entire world without exception dreamt of it? No one could not dream of the destruction of a power that had become hegemonic to such a point. In essence, it was the terrorists who committed the deed, but it is we who wished for it. I mean, I don't think a lot of people were, were horrified by that at the time, and it was an incredibly controversial essay. But I suppose you could argue Hollywood had... Had yeah. created the image of New York being destroyed many times before you know Bin Laden tried to carry it off. Although I, I, I guess again a kind of counterpoint to that would be that in, perhaps it actually doesn't show you know Bin, Bin Laden didn't triumph over a, a, a American control of the imagination. He showed that he was yet another kind of person yeah. you know enslaved by it because you know as you said they were 
absolutely conditioned by Hollywood films themselves. So perhaps in a way, Bin Laden's you know, great spectacle of terror was the greatest tribute that's ever been paid to America's control of the, the, the global imagination. That's a very good note on which to end. And you know what, Tom, we've done this without once mentioning Rudolf Giuliani, which I think is a, a great achievement on our part, given that of all the stories that came out of 9-11, the rise and fall of Giuliani's reputation is by far the most bizarre and surely worthy of multi a podcast series in itself. Well, let's Who would that. have thought then that, you know, with his baseball cap channeling Churchill and he'd end up outside that garden centre with the dye running down his face <laughs> defend, defending Donald Trump? Okay, so I have mentioned him now. You have mentioned right. him. Um, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we will be back uh, next time with more um, historical meanderings. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.